Lord God, we come before You yet again in prayer. We come in the name of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, because of who He is and what He's done for us, acknowledging He is the only access we have to You, O Most Holy Father. And we know that we cannot pray in our own strength, but we pray in the Holy Spirit, acknowledging that He prays for us, interceding for us with silent groans before the throne. What an amazing thing. But Lord, as we open up Your Word to Mark chapter 13, we need divine help. We need clarity. We need wisdom. We want to understand Biblical eschatology, the doctrine of the end, we want to understand it rightly. We want to interpret your word faithfully. Lord, we, we, want, to, we want to look for your soon return and, and the events that will happen in the future. And God, we want to know and triumph and rejoice that we are on the winning side because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we humbly pray that you would teach us wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Last week, we read a little of Mark 13, and then we read a little bit of Revelation chapter 6, because they speak of the same event of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And you'll see on your outline there, on the top right side of your page, you have a little box there, a little chart. And it's, it's kind of a chart that kind of lays out in a visible form the outline of the future as the Word of God reveals it. And you'll see there that there is the church age on the left. And then you'll see a couple of lines that talk about the tribulation. And there's the first half of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation, each are three and a half years. But do you see the middle line right there, right in the middle? If you could imagine a big arrow pointing to that middle line, the middle line of the seven-year tribulation, that's what we're zooming in on today. The whole study this evening is about the middle three and a half year mark of the future great tribulation, the tr future tribulation period. So let me read it for us and let's understand what our Savior says. Mark 13, the disciples come to him, you'll remember, on the Mount of Olives, and they say, Teacher, what great buildings? And Jesus says, The temple's going to be destroyed. And they say, Ha, oh, when's that going to happen? And Jesus tells them, about the birth pains, how things are going to escalate in the future. They've not happened yet, although we see little previews of it, but what he's described in verses 1 to 13 will happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he should not be, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. 
Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Where is this world headed? Where is this world headed? And I suppose we could give many answers and we could ask people on the street and we would get a lot of answers from people. You want to know where the world is headed? Exactly to its appointed end. The world is not out of control. The Bible teaches that God is the king ruling and reigning steadily. God is not worried. God is not taking anti-anxiety medication. God has decreed and God has predestined every event that will ever transpire because he's the sovereign king. And that includes the prophetic plan for the future of the world. And God has revealed so much detail for us about the future. God has revealed what we need to know, not every detail that we might like to know, but what we need to know. God has given to us not the timing of when all of it will happen. We would love to know the day and the hour, but no one does. But it's in the Bible, and God has given so much clarity in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And one of the things I came across in my Bible reading, and I, I put it here in my notes because it was just so cool to reflect on it. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 and verse 5, and Paul says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was speaking to you of these things? Well, what are the things? Answer, the Antichrist and what will happen in the future tribulation period. In other words, Paul loved to talk about these things. He was talking a lot and he says, don't you remember how I would talk about these things? Don't you remember how we had conversations about this? Speaking of end times, my kids are, are into puzzles. They have been lately. Puzzles are everywhere in our dining room. And I think eschatology, that is the study of end times, is kind of like a puzzle. I, I, I say that not because of confusion, but I say that because of the many pieces that we're trying to sort out so as to see the beautiful, the colorful portrait that God has given in the Bible. We've got a piece here and a piece there and a piece there. And I know it fits in there. I'm just not sure where. And it all fits together, and we're doing our best to go from Scripture to Scripture and verse and paragraph, Old Testament, New, to put it all together to form this amazing picture of what God has designed for the future. When we think about prophecy and we think about end times, I want to give a few clarifying remarks that you have there on the top of your outline. Number one, we must always interpret verses in light of the context. We have to remember that. How does this verse appear in the context? What is the author saying to his original audience and how would they have understood it? 
Second, we need to remember cross-references. And we're going to do a lot of that here in a little bit, so I can't get too bogged down. But the New Testament, I want to, I want to say the New Testament stands on the Old Testament foundation. It elaborates, it clarifies what the Old Testament laid down as a foundation. It doesn't redefine it, it just clarifies it with more detail. Mark 13 is not apocalyptic genre. Some commentaries and newer commentators like this position that this is apocalyptic. It's not apocalyptic. There's a whole lot of writing about what apocalyptic genre is, and this fits none of those. This is a prophecy. It ought to be literally interpreted, which is the next point here. We come to the chapter that Jesus gives here, interpreting it normally, straightforward, plainly, and literally. And then consistency. We want it to be consistent with other prophecies in context. If Jesus makes a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to the detail, and it literally happens, well, then I want to believe that the rest of the prophecy is literally going to be fulfilled to the detail because we want to be consistent in our interpretation. It's Tuesday night of the Passion Week. Jesus will be on a cross by Friday. He'll rise from the dead on Sunday. But a couple of days before that, it's Tuesday. He's been in the temple all day teaching and preaching and dialoguing with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus leaves the Jerusalem temple. He goes down the Kidron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And he's overlooking this beautiful temple. White limestone, magnificent, majestic, maybe the sunset over the temple. It is majestic. And the disciples are shocked when Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. And they want to know, when's that going to happen? And they also know that Messiah is going to return and establish his kingdom, but they want to know when. When's, give us a sign of the time of the end. Give us a sign of your soon coming. We want to be ready and we want to be watchful. They were looking for the signs of the end and what would establish the kingdom. Last week, in verses 3 to 13, Jesus talked about the beginning of the tribulation period. We looked at Revelation chapter 6, which describes the same event, the beginning three and a half years of the future tribulation period. Jesus called it the birth pains, the birth pains. But now, beginning in verse 14, we come to the midpoint. Jesus is now going to describe what happens at the three and a half year mark of the future seven year tribulation. And the event of all events, the world has never seen anything like it, although there's been a little bit of historical previews of it, is the abomination of desolation. This tonight is what marks the change from bad to worse. What we're looking at tonight is what makes a really bad period of divine judgment. We saw it last week in Revelation 6. This is what marks the change to a really severer, to, to a much more global and more intense, like labor pains. It gets more intense as time goes on. But the key phrase, and I want you to see it in verse 14, because the whole sermon, I want to give diagnostic questions to understand it. The abomination of desolation. What, what is that? What, what is the abomination 
of desolation. And how do we understand this? So let, let's, let's go through your outline together. And uh, you see there are a couple of charts that can kind of help you as kind of a guide as we go through. But let's ask the first question, what is the abomination of desolation? Do you see it there in verse 14? Jesus says, but when you see the abomination that causes desolation, might be literally, it's going to cause the desolation. When he is standing where it should not, where he should not be, and then he gives a bunch more detail after that. What's the abomination? In the Old Testament, abominations were sins. They were practices that incited the wrath of God because of their evil, or their blasphemy, or their pride, or their rebellion. This is like the ultimate act of monstrous evil. The ultimate monstrous act of evil that the world has never seen before. The word abomination in the Greek has the idea of disgusting, filthy, detestable, something that is abhorrent, something that would make someone vomit. It is something reprehensible to God, like idolatry or immorality and so on. So, Jesus is very clear, whatever this is, it's bad. And whatever it is, it is such an act of reprehensible evil to God that it will result in full desolation, full ruin. Daniel gives a little bit more clarity. It happens on the wing of the temple, W-I-N-G, the wing of the temple, which probably is just a Hebraism. It happens in the area of the temple. It happens in the precincts of the temple, the courts of the temple. Yeah, but, but I remember reading about that in Daniel. You're right. Daniel chapter 11 tells the account of an abomination of desolation that did occur in history. And all scholars, all whatever theological persuasion, all scholars all understand this as the last Seleucid king from Syria. We know him as Antiochus IV. Maybe you've known him as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one who in 167 BC, he came to the temple in the intertestamental period. He offered a pig on the altar, corrupted, defiled the Jerusalem temple. The Jews were enraged and Daniel prophesies that and he calls it an abomination of desolation. That was bad. That was like a preview for what's going to come in the future. What we read here and in Daniel and in Mark 13 is that there is another, a greater, a bigger, another abominable act that will occur in a future rebuilt temple. Antiochus Epiphanes is not the fulfillment of this right here. This is a future fulfillment in a rebuilt temple that will bring about a great desolation. I want to give you a couple of key thoughts on this. Number one, I want you to notice, if you are taking notes, I forget if I put this there. Number one, this is intensive. The verbal form in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing, it's as if that's the 
emphatic verbal form of the section. Whatever it is, it's going to be standing. It's going to be an ongoing, visible sight before the eyes of everyone. It is emphatic. Not only is it standing and emphatic, number two, it's masculine. Whatever the abomination is, get this, it's not a thing, it's a hymn. The abomination of desolation is a person. He's a man. He's not just some event. He's not a thing. He's not something neuter or feminine. He's a masculine individual. And the Bible calls him the lawless one, the evil man, the beast, the antichrist, the man of lawlessness. When you see the abomination of desolation. Now, I told my kids tonight when we were having family worship. I told them, now, we're going to have a little bit of a time in our Bible study where we're going to turn to different scriptures because according to the Bible, there's a lot that takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. I want to show you. Now, I can't comment too much on all of it or we'll be here all night, but I have in your outline there a bunch of scriptures that I want to go to with you. And if you can open up your Bible, turn with me to all these, let's see if we can understand what will happen at the midpoint. Let's begin. Number one, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we read about the Antichrist, this man who comes from the Romans, or that is probably from the non-Jews, from the Gentiles, Daniel 9.27, he, the man, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's seven years. That's where we get seven-year tribulation. He's going to make a firm covenant with Israel, with the Jews, for seven years. It's probably, probably a pact, maybe a peace treaty. It will probably allow the Jews to rebuild their temple, where the Muslim Dome of the Rock now is. A peace treaty. And he's going to make a pact, but in the middle of the week, now do you see that in verse 27? In the middle of the week, notice the specific chronology. In the Hebrew, it's more specific, at the halfway point. At the halfway point of the seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed upon him. So, number one in your outline, at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist is going to break a covenant that he made with Israel, and he will demand that they stop their sacrifices. Second, well, what is the abomination on the wing or in the temple area? What is it? I think God tells us exactly what it is. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter two. I, I don't think we need to guess. I don't think we need to I don't think we need to be ignorant about this. I think we can put the scriptures together. Again, we're trying to put the pieces together because Second Thessalonians chapter two is all about the Antichrist, the future man of lawlessness. Chapter two, verse three. 
Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, here's what the Antichrist does. Verse four, he will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he will take his seat in the temple of God. Okay, that tells a few things. Number one, there's going to be a temple. Number two, there's going to be a man and he's going to take his stand in the temple of God. The end of verse four, he will display himself as being God. I think that is the abomination of desolation in the future rebuilt temple in the middle three and a half year period. What is that horrendous act that is filthy in the eyes of God and it will result in great ruin? It's this. It is the Antichrist taking his stand or his seat in the temple and declaring, I am God. And verse 5 is what I quoted earlier. Paul says, don't you know that I was telling you all these things when I was with you? There's another thing that happens at the midway point. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Now this, this is interesting. Revelation chapter 11. At the midway point of the, revela- of the uh, tribulation, we learn about two men, two witnesses. They're murdered. They're murdered at the midpoint of the tribulation, the three and a half year point. Times are going to get really interesting. Verse one of chapter 11, there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple and the altar and those who worship in it. So in the future, there's a rebuilt temple. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Guess what? That's three and a half years. That's the final three and a half years. The Gentiles are going to have full reign of the temple. Verse three, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days. That's three and a half years. Like to the day. Clothed in sackcloth. Why? Because their message is one of repentance. Judgment is coming. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and lampstands. Zechariah talks about that. That stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anybody wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours the enemies. So if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. I believe that will literally be fulfilled. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, when their work is done, the beast, the Antichrist that is, that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and he will overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Egypt, mystically, where their Lord was crucified, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who rejoice over them, uh, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. These guys prophesy for 1,000 260 days, three and a half years. And then when their work is done at the midpoint of the tribulation, they're killed. They're killed. 
Well, then, then look at Revelation 11 and verse 14. What also happens at the midpoint of the tribulation? It's what we call the third woe. Revelation eleven fourteen. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Why is that bad? Because in this final woe, in the seventh trumpet, it unleashes the final bowl judgments. That is the final series of intensive judgments that will come about in the final part of the tribulation period. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This is a woe that will happen at the midpoint because divine wrath will be poured out on the wicked earth dwellers. Another point that happens at the midpoint, turn back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Now, Mark doesn't have this detail. That's why we have to go to Matthew, Matthew 24. What we have in Matthew 24, verse 21, after Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, verse 21, then there will be, verse 21, a great tribulation. Oh, the whole period is affliction and tribulation. But the final three and a half years is a specific period of great tribulation. It will be severer. It will be more intense. It will be global. It will be harsh. It will be full of evil. And then number six, we just read it there in Second Thessalonians, but the Antichrist will claim deity. He will claim deity. Let me tell you what Daniel chapter 11, I'll just read it quickly. Verse 36 says, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. And then Daniel 11.37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. For he will magnify himself above them all. The abomination of desolation, I think, is the heart of pride of this world leader who will set himself in the future rebuilt temple and say, I am God. Jews, you cannot sacrifice anymore to your Yahweh God. You have to worship me. Another feature of the midpoint of the tribulation, let's go back to Revelation 12. Now we get really interesting, but I think this still will literally happen. Revelation 12 Beginning in verse 7. Well, actually, let's begin in verse 6. The woman, Revelation 12, 6, the woman is Israel here who fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. She would be nourished for 1,260 days. More on that in a little bit. God will protect Israel. 
Verse 7, there will be war in heaven. Michael and the archangels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels wage war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon, that Satan, was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I'm not sure if I fully know what that means that Satan is cast out of the heavens and he is confined only to this earth, but it's got to be bad. At the midpoint, Satan will have no more access into heaven anymore, but he will only be confined to this world. Look right before that at verse 6. Another feature of the three and a half year tribulation is verse 6. The woman, and the woman in context is Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews, They will flee into the wilderness, that is the desert of Judea, where she will have a place divinely prepared for her so that she would be nourished, that is provided, God will provide for her, 1,260 days. That's to the day, three and a half years. Do we want to see how severe the persecution the Antichrist will bring on the Jews? Look at verse 13. Of that chapter. The dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That is Israel gave birth to Jesus. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. So that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. Where she would be nourished for a time. That's one year. And times two years. And half a time. Six months. Three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. This future midpoint of the tribulation, Satan cast out of heaven. Antichrist proclaims himself as God. There is unleashing of all hell and demonic forces against the Jewish people in particular in the future tribulation period. Number nine in your outline, Satan will fully empower and energize The Antichrist. Look at Revelation 13, the very next chapter. Revelation 13. And you'll notice as I read Revelation, I'm just reading it and interpreting it literally, right? When there's chronological features, I interpret those literally as they happen successively in order. Because that's how the Lord gave the book of Revelation to John. So in Revelation 13, verse 4, they worship the dragon, that is the people on the earth, worship the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him, that is the Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That's three and a half years. So what's the point of all this? Satan is fully not just empowering, he's possessing, he's indwelling the Antichrist. This beast will be fully given over to the power of Satan. And he will, finally in your outline here, devour the earth pridefully and hate the saints. Now, we've taken a lot of pieces of the puzzle, Daniel, Thessalonians, Revelation, Matthew, Mark, we're trying to fit them together. If you take your Bible and go back to Mark, here's what's going on. 
Jesus is saying to the disciples, when you see this event of the abomination that will bring about the desolation standing where it should not be. Oh, can you imagine that event? Let me summarize. The Antichrist is a man. He's a person. He's a real human. He's arrogant. I believe Daniel teaches he's winsome, cunning, crafty, and satanically empowered. Revelation teaches that the Antichrist will have a mortal wound. Probably he'll be assassinated. And he will appear to resurrect and rise from the dead. After all, he's the Antichrist. He'll appear to rise from the dead. He will win the accolade and the reverence of the world. He will gather the world against Jesus when he comes at the second coming. And he will be defeated instantly, supernaturally. And he will be devastated And the Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of fire. He is the first creature who is ever thrown into the lake of fire. Is the Antichrist. When the thousand year kingdom is over, the Antichrist is still burning in torment in the lake of fire. With all of that. And that's pretty scary. Global. Hard to comprehend. I mean, our mind is going all these directions with all these scriptures. Christian, remember, he will be utterly destroyed. Revelation tells us, Thessalonians tells us, Thessalonians says, he will be destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth. Praise God for the power of our Savior. Now, Back to your outline. After all of that, that's answering the question, what is the abomination of desolation? Don't worry, the rest of the points go real quick. But but what is the abomination? It is the man who sets himself up as God in the future temple at the middle of the the seven-year tribulation. When? Number two, when? Well, Jesus said, when you see... The abomination of desolation. And then this really interesting phrase. You see it in your Bible? Let the reader understand. When I was doing my PhD work, the very end of all the work, of the classwork and your dissertation defense, you have kind of a, a final exit, oral exam with your profs. And they grabbed, I, I cried. It was terrible. I mean, they humbled me. It was miserable. But one of the questions they asked me, what does this mean? Let the reader understand. I had no idea. I had no idea what this meant. I think I figured it out. I think I know what it means. Jesus is giving a clue As to when you will see the abomination of desolation. Meaning, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, apostles. Why? You're going to write it down. And later generations that will read what you write down, it will be for them in the future. When they read. I wish I would have known that then, but I didn't. Didn't know that. Daniel 9.27 makes it abundantly clear it is at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. When does the abomination happen? 
The Bible calls it the middle of the seventh week. The Bible calls it time, times, and half a time. The Bible calls it 1,260 days. The Bible calls it 42 months. It's literal, it's future. Three and a half year into the tribulation. Okay, back to our text. Mark 13. Well, why? Why should we care and why should we do anything? that's That's a good question. Why? Now in your outline, number three, look with me here in your outline. Jesus says in verse 14, then... Okay, when this happens, you got to take action. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Be urgent, don't delay. And all these applications Jesus gives to not hesitate. When you, who are alive at the future and this happens... When you see the abomination of desolation, run for the mountains of Judah and do it now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't hesitate. Look at what he says, verse 15. If you're on the housetop where people would often stay and congregate, don't even go down into your house to get your belongings. Verse 16. If you're in the field, don't go back in your house to get a coat. Don't start packing. It'll be too late. Verse 17, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. Why? Great hardship is about to happen. Verse 18, pray that it will not happen in winter. Why? Tumultuous conditions for travel, rain and crossing riverbeds and all that. You don't want that to happen in the wintertime. It'll make travel difficult. Swift action. Don't delay. When the future generation sees the abomination of desolation, Run fast. Now, we're called to evangelize. At that point, they're called to run. Run for your shelter and run. Because the situation will be so bad and so horrific that people should flee without the slightest hesitation. Why? Why? Why all of this? Look at verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation. Matthew had great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. I mean, even the flood wasn't this bad. Even what Antiochus Epiphanes did, even the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans, that pales in comparison to what's going to happen here. Nothing has ever happened since the beginning of creation. Notice here, very clearly, God created all things. And nothing like it will even happen after it. Verse 20, unless the Lord shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Meaning, unless God had shortened the period to seven years, nobody would survive this. It would be so bad. But for the sake of the elect, God has shortened the period to only seven years. Years. God is sovereignly in control. Revelation 17 tells us. And verse 17, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by giving their kingdom to the Antichrist until the words of God will be fulfilled. God is in control. God is in control of all of this. It is a sovereign decree. Nothing like it before. Nothing 
like it after. Okay, so we've seen what the abomination is. We have seen when the abomination occurs at the midpoint. We've seen why we ought to respond. It's going to be so bad for those that are alive at that time. They ought to run for the hills. Fourth, well, how? How, do, how, how should God's people respond? Now, I think we do well to remember that prophecy, when rightly understood, it's always practical, right? The truth regarding the end is meant to transform us. God gives material here to motivate us to watchfulness and discernment to cling to Christ. 21, look at verse 21. Here's the application And if anybody says to you, hey, there's the Christ, there's the Savior, there's the Deliverer. We have a lot of those today. Hey, trust in me. I I can give you freedom of speech. I can give you the political hopes that you've been dreaming for. We have a lot of those Deliverers in our day. Don't go after them. Don't believe them. Well, how much more in the future tribulation? Don't believe those guys. Verse 22, because even false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will show signs and wonders to lead astray even the elect if possible. What's the purpose of all of it? 23, take heed, watch out, beware, be on guard, be on the alert, be careful. Hold on to God's word. Hold on to God's word. Don't be caught off guard. Now again, I mentioned last week, I don't think the catching up of the saints, we call it the rapture of the catching up of the saints, I don't think that's in this chapter. But I think there's a lot of applications for us in this chapter. Hold on to Christ. Don't be led astray by false teachers. Understand that times are going to get real tough. And and we see Israel and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount as the center point of world events, right? I mean, Israel's in the middle of nations in the Middle East that want to annihilate them. And they keep threatening to annihilate them. And that'll never happen, praise God. It'll never happen. Let's hold on to God's Word. And let's believe that our God is faithful and not be led astray. But I'll tell you, That Antichrist in that future seven-year tribulation period will be a time of great abomination that is so repulsive to God, it will bring about the future, the ultimate desolation and ruin, unlike the world has ever seen before. The beast, the Antichrist, will be conquered He will be devastated by the true Christ. And his kingdom will be thrashed and destroyed by Christ and his coming kingdom. And so you and I can say, praise the Lord. Our Savior is the King. I want you to turn with me to one verse and then we want to pray. But Revelation 17. Turn there if you would. Revelation 17. And I want to just read Revelation 17, 14. Now here's where we are. Revelation 17 describes the future culture of the tribulation period. That's Babylon. It's not only the city of Babylon that will be rebuilt in modern day Iraq by Baghdad. But it's also the, it's the, it's the whole system, the ungodly system 
that is also called Babylon as well. It's kind of an, it's kind of an outworking of the evil that takes place in the city. Look at what happens. Revelation seventeen fourteen. These, that is those of the Antichrist, will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them. Because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And here's you. Those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, as we respond to Your Word, oh, there's so much that we could say, so many questions, I'm sure, many, many Scriptures that we would love to dive into even more. But Lord, we, we want to respond with, with hearts full of gratitude that You, You alone are the God who is victorious. Oh, we, we say all glory be to Christ. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. And we gratefully sing His power and His love. Thank you for the gospel of grace that has saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.